Hey everybody, this is John Button. I play bass with a band called The Who, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I want to go into your life, but I want to ask a little bit about last night's concert. Okay. Okay, so the first thing I noticed was the, the orchestra's sitting there, and it's probably like an 80-piece orchestra. And the lights go down, and the first one on stage is you. <laughs> and you're almost, you're trotting on stage. What are you thinking at that moment? Oh my goodness, what am I thinking? I think I was thinking, why am I the first one out on stage tonight? I'm not usually <laughs> the first one out on stage. Oh, this is not a normal thing. <laughs> um, no. I mean, we just, you know, we're all kind of huddled up waiting for the lights to go down and, and our tour manager to say, go. And usually Zach comes out first so that he can get situated because he needs a little more time to get seated behind the kit. But I don't know why I ended up running out first. <laughs> um, and then probably the other thing that's going through my mind is just, I have to, just technically, I have to get my, I have a, we wear in-ear monitors. Right. And I'm not using, some people use wireless packs for their in-ear monitor pack that sits on your belt. And I have one that has a wire on it. So it's sitting on stage. So I have to get up there and plug my in-ear headphones into the pack and then get the pack onto my belt and then get my bass on and then make sure my bass is in tune. And that, so that's kind of what's going through my head is kind of just, okay, here's the things I need to do to be ready to start playing. Right. Okay. So why do you not use a wireless? Um, partly because I don't really move around on stage that much. Okay. So I don't need a wireless. And then also the wired packs actually sound a little bit better because you're not compressing the signal to send it out over a wireless right. okay, thing. Like so you, don't, you don't pick up radio or anything, do you? No. <laughs> no uh, no uh, Spinal Tap uh, F-16 communications <laughs> through our in-ears. So you started, you're from... Um, Fairbanks, Alaska. Tell yep. me about growing up in Fairbanks. Um, which part? The musical part or the, the, the living part? The living part first. Um, so, see, pretty interesting place to grow up. I mean, uh, there's a lot of nature around, which is pretty amazing. My dad uh, flies airplanes, not professionally, but he had a little, little bush plane. And we used to fly out to, you know, little lakes and stuff. He had floats on it, so we'd land on lakes and. Well, so is he? Out. So he doesn't do this as a business. This is Correct. just a hobby. Yeah, wow. yeah. He's a microbiologist by trade. Wow. Um, but he was in the Air Force when he was younger, so he learned to fly, and he's he's an avid aviation uh, person. So uh, yeah, we would do that kind of stuff and lots of lots of outdoor activities. Um, and, uh, you know, it also was interesting in that it just, it, it felt very kind of isolated, which sort of changes your experience, I guess. I mean, you know, we would, we had like two or three TV channels. Um, I remember we didn't get a telephone until, uh, must've been about 1976, 75, something like that. I remember getting a telephone. <laughs> And before that, we had like a ham radio. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, we got second run movies and, and also not many 
bands come through. I mean, I'm so kind of jealous of people that grew up like near New York City and they could go see any artist anytime, you know, and we just hardly anybody comes touring through Alaska. Okay, so who came through Alaska back then that made an impression on you? Ah, wow. Good question. I... There really were very few concerts. I mean, I mainly remember just like getting, ordering, uh, like through the mail, ordering VCR tapes of concerts or watching like, I remember watching like the JVC Jazz Festival on TV and recording it and watching (laughs) that, you know, and honestly, honestly watching like concert videos more than... I can't think of. I th- there were a few like jazz artists that came up. I can't remember who they were, so obviously they weren't that big of an impact. <laughs> okay, but you grew up in somewhat of a musical family. You started playing True. piano. This yes. is your parents' influence. Yes. So my parents both uh, played a little bit of music. My mom was in the the community choir and played piano. My dad played saxophone and clarinet um and they i think they just felt like it was uh kind of enriching to get us started on music it was a good thing to learn um to help out in no matter what vocation you went into you know um and i believe there are studies that prove that yeah um so they started all of us so i'm the youngest of five kids and they started all of us on piano um, pretty early. I, me, I think earlier than any other ones. I th- I can't, I got to figure out, I think it was I, just before I turned five, I think I started on piano. Um, yes. And did you connect with the instrument or was it just because your parents told you you had to do this? I think it was mainly the latter, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, I think. Um, but I, I don't think I had a huge connection to the piano. Um but then, so my oldest brother is a drummer, and he had bought a bass when, so he's 10 years older than me. When he was 16 or 17, he bought a bass. And I, I think I always sort of had in mind that I would go move to another instrument from piano, because that's what all my other siblings did. So I did whatever they were doing. Um, and so, yeah, he bought this really cool uh, Rickenbacker bass. Wow. And, you know, as a six-year-old, you look at this cool bass and it's got this huge amplifier and you can plug in and pretend you're a rock star. And So your brother bought it mainly just to have somebody play with him? Is that, Or was he going to take up the bass as well? So he wanted to play bass, yeah. So in Fairbanks, Alaska, he, you know, he would try to put bands together as a drummer and there would be a guitar player and him and they could never find a bass player. <laughs> um, so he thought, well, I'll learn how to play bass. Um, so he bought a bass and, with the intention of learning to play bass and play, played bass in a couple of bands. Um, but yeah, he was kind enough to let his little six-year-old wow. <laughs> brother mess around with his bass. And did you take to it immediately? I, I did, yeah. I really liked it. And then, uh, brilliantly, my mom suggested I enroll in the school orchestra, which we had, you know, from grade school Mm -hmm. so in third grade I started playing in the school orchestra and learning to read music and then I started at the same time private lessons um, on string bass playing classical classical bass so yeah um, that was very helpful when did you think that 
this is what you wanted to do? Um, you know, I remember I must have been about 13, I think. I was like in middle school, like seventh grade, I think. And I was playing, it was spring break from school. So I had a week off of school and I was playing in the pit orchestra for the local light, light opera theater. And I was getting paid. And I was doing this and I wasn't going to school and I was playing music and I was like, this is awesome. I just <laughs> want to do this. I don't want to go back to school. I want to keep playing music. Um, and I had a couple experiences like that um, where I was away from school and working, you know, kind of as a music musician, making a little couple bucks here and there. I was like, this is cool. I like this. And was there any mentors or did you have anybody you could talk to about the possibility of pursuing this route? I think my oldest brother, he wanted to be a, oh, a professional okay. musician as well. And he ended up going to Berklee College of Music in Boston for a while and, and was a professional drummer for a few years. He ended up having a kid and sort of changing career paths at that time. But um, yeah, definitely he he sort of would cue me into what different professional musicians were doing. I remember him pointing out the the band on David Letterman's show. You know, at the time it was Will Lee and... And, and the Iron Block. Uh, actually, back then it was Steve Jordan. Oh, okay. Um, but we, you know, he'd like those guys are, you know, they're like session musicians. Like, right, yeah. You know, and I, I was checking out Willie, and and so I kind of he sort of cued me into the fact that there are these session musicians, you know, that do this kind of thing that I'm doing now, and I was interested in that, like, oh, you know, playing on recording sessions and. And stuff like that. So pretty early on, I was familiar with that line of work. So more so than joining in a band and making it that way. Correct. So yeah. at that point, you thought, okay, I want to be either a session musician, studio musician, yeah, a hired touring musician. Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't have that, like, oh, I don't want to be a rock star thing. It was more like, I want to be a, a session musician. Wow. From a pretty young age. Like, there's actually a... There's an article in my local newspaper from when I was, boy, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something, where I, I mentioned in there, yeah, I want to, you know, like, <laughs> play on commercial jingles and, like, be a studio musician. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've heard other people say that, but, I mean, at 12, to think that, that's... Yeah, kind of weird. But at the, at the same time, <laughs> were you were you in bands, I would presume, other than the school no. bands? No. Well, there, I, I didn't find... In, at least in the circles I was in, I didn't find that there were many opportunities to like be in a band. And I didn't, none of my musicians friends were like make join you know like putting together a rock band, really. So yeah, I was playing in the school jazz band and school orchestra and all that kind of stuff was kind of more what I was doing. And musically, um, I know you were buying VCR tapes and playing in big bands, school bands. Musically, what were you? into was it mainly big brass bands or more than that it it kind of morphed as time went on i mean i kind of i went through a phase where i was yeah really into like straight ahead jazz playing upright bass and i thought i wanted to be like some sort of like jazz guy and then there was a brief period when i was really into the classical thing and i was really practicing classical a lot um and i think for a minute i i was interested in maybe there's a line of work in LA where you, if you're really good at 
classical and jazz and rock and everything and can play all the different instruments, that's a really handy thing to be like a playing on film scores. Right. Because they'll have, you know, they'll have you do any of those things. Um, so, yeah. And as far as what music, you know, I listened to like new wave rock for a while and then I was really like into the straight ahead jazz thing. And I, I don't know, I kind of, it, it's, I, I think my, my uh, taste and influences kind of changed a wildly as I grew up. But um, it, it surprises me that you weren't in a lot of rock bands. Right. I know. I, I <laughs> And you're really, playing for the, like the greatest rock band I ever. Know, I know. I actually, it's funny. I didn't really get into rock music until much later. I didn't really even get into the Beatles till I was like in my 20s. And how did that happen? I, somebody introduced me to, I think what happened was is I, I heard some of the later Beatles stuff that I hadn't heard before. I think when I was a kid, I heard like, I want to hold your hand. And yeah, yeah was like, eh, that sounds silly. And, you know, <laughs> and then I sort of understood where they were coming from and heard some of the later stuff that was really interesting and just kind of, you know, that pulled me in and I became a fan. Do you think, like, I presume that being in a band, there's a lot to learn, not only about music, but about interaction and about give and take and about working with other people, I presume. And I, I presume you would have probably gotten that in a way with your school bands and whatever. But I don't know if it's the same as hanging out with Joe in his garage and, and trying to get something together. Do you think you missed anything by not having that interaction? Or when you actually got into bands, did anything surprise you about that interaction? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure definitely I had a different experience doing what I did. And I think... I I did join some bands from, you know, my later college years and when I first moved to LA, I was in a few bands. And I think like when I first moved to LA and was playing in a band, I I think part of what struck me was I, you know, I came from this sort of more regimented scholastic thing yeah. and I I could be a little bit high strung and so like, you know, I would show up 15 minutes before rehearsal and nobody's there and like, Hey, we we're supposed to start at two o'clock and you're not here yet. And you know, I think I, I was kind of a nerd, you know, and like not really under, you know, I was just a little uptight. I think like, I think I had to learn to be a little more relaxed. You know? Um, you decided to pursue, so this, the idea of becoming a studio musician or the best bass player out there so you can do anything um, is that what you took to took you to University of Northern Texas? Is that yeah? So I mean, at that time, my later high school years, I think, was the period where I was really into kind of being a straight ahead jazz guy. And uh, University of North Texas has a really really good jazz program. Um, I think, in my mind, I kind of wanted to go to Berklee College of Music in Boston. Um, but my father, I believe, I guess, I think Berkeley was not like an accredited actual university. Right. And my dad, being a college professor, wanted me to go to an actual accredited university. Um, so, yeah, they, they steered me away from Berkeley, which was probably good because Berkeley is a really expensive school um, in an expensive city. 
and so University of North Texas, I got like a little scholarship to go there and the cost of living in this little podunk town of Denton, Texas, where that university is based, is the cost of living is really cheap. And so I was able to get through college without pulling out a bunch of student loans and being in debt when I got out of school. So wow. it worked out really, really well for me. So a few, few questions come to mind. Your dad and your parents, who both encouraged the kids to play music, um, and also the fact that your brother pursued that and, and kind of set the way that, you know, you can actually go after music. How did your parents feel about you pursuing a musical career? Um, yeah, my dad wasn't too encouraging of it. I, you know, I, obviously it comes from a place of, you know, wanting to protect me from, mm -hmm. you know, failure, I guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it, it's a tough business. It really is. I mean, probably if you look at the percentage of people that are able to make a living as a musician, it's pretty low. And generally, you know, most people don't probably make a very good living at it. It's yeah, it's a tough it's a tough thing. So, you know, I think he wanted to, you know, just make sure I he you know, he wished the best for me. So I think uh, he was just trying to be helpful. So, you know, he reluctantly, I think, <laughs> let me go off to music school, but I think he had his reservations about it. When you yeah. said you wanted to pursue jazz at that point, did you have any idea what that meant? Like in terms of like, what is a jazz musician? What do they do? How much do they make? What kind of lifestyle do they have? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I knew. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was aspiring to be like, I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Hayden. You know, I mean, he's pretty much the cream of the crop. I don't know if that's how realistic it is to become the next Charlie Hayden. Um, but yeah, I suppose, you know. Well, oh, it didn't matter. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, I, I, what would that mean? Yeah, I think it meant touring with, you know, famous sax players, you know, like being Michael Brecker's bass player or something. Right. You know, you aimed high. <laughs> <laughs> and and when you went to school did anything surprise you yeah you know I, so we talked about a little bit about being isolated in alaska one of the things was i didn't really know how i measured up to people that grew up in new york and you know right um and i actually was surprised that when i got to school i actually was you know, in a pretty good place. <laughs> and, and why do you think that is? Is that just the schooling and was it the discipline of practicing? What, what, what got you that good place, you think? Um, probably partly that I didn't know where I measured up against people that lived in the lower 48, as we call it, mm -hmm. uh, when we were up in Alaska. Those and, people. Yeah. So I, I think I, I just had some idea of where I should be and it was pretty high so I, I really worked extra hard to to sort of live up to some imagined um, uh, place that I needed to get to but was it work was it was was your passion for playing the bass so much that you would just spend hours in the bedroom or in the basement and it wasn't work it was what you craved or there was there was some of both I mean I I loved I love doing it and playing, but I also, you know, I worked really hard. Yeah, I would, I did a lot of practicing, especially high school years, 
Yeah, I put in hours and hours, yeah. And I, I wonder, when you went to Denton, Texas, how much exposure you had to outside of Fairbanks? Like, did you travel a lot? Was this the first time away from home? No, I traveled a bit. Actually, I was able to... Uh, I got in the McDonald's All-American Band, which is a kind of funny thing. But they had like a jazz band that was sort of like an honor, like a they kind of picked a couple of the best people from different states and sort of put together a national uh, jazz band. Well, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so I was able, I did that. And so I was, we, we traveled around a bit. I ended up in New York and L.A. Um, and a few other places during that time that was my senior year of high school so they they would fly us out to different those places um so this would have been like your first road gig i guess so yeah i mean we weren't like on tour but we'd like you know have a week here and a week there yeah um but yeah and i i traveled a little bit here and there so it was, definitely wasn't my first time out of the state but it was definitely a shock <laughs> I would imagine it would be. Um, and then, so you go through school. When you, did you get what you thought you would get out of North Texas? Wow. I don't know. I can't remember what expectation I had, if any, um, prior to going there. But um, I feel like I, you know, I got, I, I was able, there's a lot of great musicians there. I was able to play with great great players which is a great education you know playing with other great musicians um and do you come out of school thinking i'm i'm ready for the jazz world or have things changed no i think about halfway through school i think what i think i kind of got burned out on jazz i did like that school is just so all jazz all the time (laughs) um and i sort of discovered rock music i was like oh that's kind of cool this this rock thing that (laughs) I really was somewhat sheltered from growing up. Three chords. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. And you know what part of it was? uh, Growing up in Alaska, I mentioned we had like two or three channels. We couldn't get cable TV where my parents lived. So I had never seen MTV. (laughs) So I get to college and I'm like, whoa, I'm watching MTV and seeing like rock stars and, you know, like this Sounds so funny, but yeah, seeing who like, impressed you, like what what shocked you or what drew you in. Boy, oh, I don't remember. To be, I, it was just the general, all the stuff that was on MTV at the time, which would have been not great stuff. It was like <laughs> 1992, probably. I don't know what would have been. It would have been like Warrant or something horrible like that. <laughs> But what do you think it was about, like, I presume, because I think of classical music and jazz as highbrow and very technical and right. very sophisticated. What do you think drew you into the more simplistic <laughs> music of rock? And I think it was sort of just the the carefree fun of it and, you know, probably the possibility of picking up girls, maybe. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> Factored before. into it. I, I think I think mainly it just it it seemed fun and relaxed and like not so uptight. Okay, so <laughs> a number of people I've interviewed recently have kind of went through that jazz path for some reason. 
I don't know why. It always seems like when I interview people, it comes in clumps of things. But okay, as a as a very disciplined jazz musician, do you, when you look at the simplistic music of rock or MTV videos, how do you view that? Do you think, well, that's easy, or is there? Do you realize, oh my God, there, there's something completely different to playing this that I'm not really aware of? Yes. <laughs> Both. So I find what happens is you, you initially hear it and go, oh, that's so easy. And then you, you try to do it and you go, oh, it's not as easy as it sounds to make it really convincing and, and sound honest and, and true. Um, it's, it's harder than it seems. And I think that's a common uh, view from like a, some jazz musicians it's like oh that that rock music it's it's easy it's only yeah, yeah. like you say three chords um but to really do it convincingly and sound sound right um yeah who would have been players or bands that you listened to and thought wow that's that's more complicated or that that really drew you in that because you found their ideas interesting well like acdc i mean you listen to the bass parts on that it's like wow that's so simple but to make it feel like that, it's not that easy. And then also just conceptually, like, I sadly, I can't remember the bass player's name in ACDC, which is kind of sad. But anyway, like, there are parts where he just doesn't even play on the whole verse. <laughs> he doesn't play at all. And then he comes in on the chorus and it just makes it lift. And it's like, oh, that's so brilliant. <laughs> That he just didn't play. And who knows, he might have been getting a beer, you know, when, when they were rehearsing the song. They were like, yeah, that works. Or maybe it was a, you know, whole conceptual thing. But, you know, it's, I mean, just to think of stuff like that. Like, it seems so simple and silly. Like, oh, I just won't play. But it, you know, I don't know. That's, that can be a brilliant thing. So how long does it take for you to, and I don't know if you decide that you would pursue rock in a, in a strong way, but how long does it take you to kind of get used to that idea and becoming more of a rock bassist than a jazz bassist? Um, I think I'm still st <laughs> work in progress. <laughs> you, do, you do realize you play for the who. <laughs> I, I do forget that sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, seriously, I still, you know, I still work at it, but I, boy. Is jazz more com comfortable to you? Still? Not at this point. No, I mean, I, I've i kind of been away from jazz for such a long time that I'm I'm really rusty at jazz. I, I would have a hard time on a jazz gig at this point. So, and, and then the idea of pursuing jazz as a career is no longer... No, <laughs> that's, that's long gone. Yeah. So you get out of school, and then you're still pursuing this idea of becoming a session player... You go yes. to L.A. Yes. Because you think that's where all the work is? Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, I suppose to be a fairly high-level kind of session musician, you either need to be in New York, Nashville, Los Angeles, or maybe London. So I was sort of looking at those things. and I New York just didn't really appeal to me, and I I just thought the the lifestyle in L.A. seemed to gel with me more. Um, and then also, 
that LA was where more of the work that I kind of wanted to do seemed to be from what I had heard okay. from other people. But are you, you come into LA and are you, I should say, are you have, but you have a degree. You have. <laughs> I, I didn't. Oh, you didn't. <laughs> you had the experience of going to university. Um, how do you try to establish yourself to pursue session work? Right. So I, well, I knew two people, so I had that going for me. Yeah. And those <laughs> were they people you knew from school? Was that? Yes. Uh, they were both guys that I knew from North Texas. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, you know, they introduced me to a couple of people. I got a couple of gigs here and there. I pretty much just said yes to everyone. And I played with, I was still playing jazz. So I was doing jazz gigs here and there and playing with singer songwriters. Some of, a lot of which for free and, you know, I just was playing with everybody I could and making connections, you know? And so, and I would always give every project that I was working with my 110%. And, you know, people, I guess, would notice. And, you know, drummer, the drummer that I was playing with in this thing, he'd be playing with somebody else and be like, oh, we need a bass player. You should get this new guy, John, that he, he did this rehearsal the other day with me. And he was, he really knew the stuff and he was good. So let's recommend him. And so slowly you start you know, getting recommended for better and better things and, and meeting more people and networking. and Wow. Yeah. And that was, was that the plan? Was that, was there a plan in place or? <sighs> Boy. Yeah, I think so. I think that was my idea is just like, yeah, try and, you know, meet more and more people and hopefully work my way up the, up the ranks. And you did. <laughs> I did. Do yeah. You know, was there a moment where you thought, well, yeah, I've just, Moved up a step or two? For sure. Um, so one of my first kind of small breaks was uh, I had met another bass player named Mike Elizondo, um, who's a phenomenal bass player um, and has moved on to become a huge producer and now he's like a label executive or something. Um, but he, at the time, he was doing jazz gigs and also starting to do some session work around LA. He was about the same age as me. And this was early on. This must have been like 94, 95. Um, and I'd met him through another guy and, you know, he and I became friends and he used to uh, have me sub for him on jazz gigs and stuff. And he had played on a record for a girl called Rebecca that was on Electra Records. And she was going out on tour and he wasn't going to do the tour. And so he recommended me to audition for that tour. And I got the gig and we ended up going out and opening for like Third Eye Blind and Matchbox 20 at the height of their heyday. Um, and that was like my first big kind of major label touring thing. We, t we did Lilith Fair back when that was oh. big. And so that was kind of a good stepping stone. Like, hey, you know, I've done this major major label tour. Um, yeah, so that was definitely a break. So tell me, me yeah. had you done any other tours at that point? Like, had you done short tours in a van or whatever? Uh, a little bit. I had toured with a jazz artist out of uh, Dallas, a guy named Joe McBride. I'd done some touring with him. That was like kind of a smooth jazz thing. Um, but no, that was really my first actual, like, kind of tour, tour. 
What did you learn from that experience? Oh my goodness. Oh, it was so long ago. Um, <laughs> well, because this is your first major tour. Yeah. And, and I presume it was for a while on the road and. Yeah, it wasn't a super long tour, but yeah, it was definitely a number of months. Um, one of the things that was really educational on that tour was the drummer was a very experienced, amazing drummer named Herman Matthews. Um, and he had, prior to that, he had, uh, he had played with all kinds of huge, like Richard Marks and, uh, Kenny Loggins. I mean, when they were really big. So he was, he was a fair bit older than me. Uh, no offense, Herman. Um, (laughs) But he he was, I mean, he was a serious, really seasoned, amazing drummer. And to work with him, and I remember one of the things when we did one of the first shows with her, the rest of the band besides Herman were a bit younger, like me. Um, and um, the first show, like, we're playing in an arena opening for a big band, you know, and there's like 15,000 people screaming, you know, like young, like college kids. And you get excited and you start rushing. And so, you know, we, we were so excited. We came on stage and we're like, that was amazing. And Herman was like, man, that was terrible. You guys were all, you like, as soon as we started, you guys were like off to the races, you know, I'm trying to hold you guys back like a caboose. And so that sort of stuck with me like, oh, you, you know, and that's something you have to keep in mind sometimes playing these huge, exciting shows it's easy to get overexcited and start rushing, which as a <laughs> bass player is the worst thing you can do. You want to be in the pocket and kind of laid back. So you have to sort of like take a deep breath and sort of But is calm that an down. easy thing to know? What's that? Is that an easy thing to know that you're rushing? You know, I mean, there's this energy that's going on and, and, and you're obviously feeling it. There's a reaction and, and, and you're playing and you may be playing a little fast, but... Right. Is it easy to go, oh, maybe I'm playing a little fast? Is it easy? uh, I mean, once you become aware of it and learn how to be aware of it, then it's it's fairly easy to know. But until you're made aware of it, no, it's not easy to know. I mean, does that make any sense at all? (laughs) No, no, it does make sense. Okay, so you you do this tour and you have some experience. Now you have a... um, experience of touring with a major label how easy is it to, to continue that because because i just had a conversation with another musician about how when you do your own stuff people think you're really busy or when you're involved in a bigger project they think you're busy and then that ends and people wow. will still think you're busy and true you're not <laughs> yeah well you kind of learn that you have to you have to reach out to people and and you know say hey I just finished this great tour. It was really great, but it's come to an end. If you hear of anything, let me know. Was it, Does that come easy to you to do? I guess that would be like a cold call. Yeah, it does. I mean, I feel like I'm able to do it in a friendly, you know, you do it with people that you know and, and that you're friendly with. And, you know, I'm not calling people that I don't know at right, all. Right. I'm just like randomly like, hello, my name's John Button and I'm looking for a tour. You know, you you end up with a network of people that you know do other tours and, you know, you can call another bass player friend and be like, hey, you know, this tour I was doing ended and, and you know, if you hear of anything that you're not going to do, right. you know, let me know. I'll be happy to take your table scraps. 
but so your dream was to be a hired musician to go on like a freelance basis to go on tour and do studio work yes and with this tour you're kind of accomplishing this exactly right? and then right. you're also starting to do studio work yeah how easy was it to establish your name in the studio side of things still working on that <laughs> really because I, mean, I mean you have quite a few albums yeah behind no you. i've i i I do all right with that, but you know, part of the, yeah, it was, it's hard to break into the studio scene. And part of the problem is, is, you know, I get called for a tour that takes me out for a year and a half, two years, and it's hard to turn down like a year and a half of steady work to trade it for, you know, the studio work is like, well, here's a three days here and maybe four days there. And so... And then when you're gone for a month or a year and a half or two, people sort of, like you're saying, they assume you're gone. Yeah. And you sort of, you also just don't, you're not cultivating those studio relationships because you're out on tour. You can't, you're not there to do the studio work. So it can be challenging to roll into town for a couple of months and be like, hey, who wants to hire me for studio oh, games? I was like, oh, well, we're using the guy that's always in town. <laughs> So at at what point did you have to make a decision of which you wanted to do? Like, I understand the advantage of the studio because you're at home, but the disadvantage being that you're not playing all all the time or you're not gigging all the time. And so you're always looking for more work. Right. But the advantage of being on tour, and it could be two months, it could be a year and a half, is that you're working, but (laughs) you're not at home. Right. I mean, I think I would have had to, I think the, the touring thing just sort of in a way, I mean, I pursued it, but it just sort of came and I didn't argue with it. And I think if I wanted to really, really pursue this, if I was really uh, devoted to doing the studio thing, I would have had to turn down a lot of tours and just accept that I wasn't going to take those gigs and just try to stay home and be a studio musician. And I just never, I don't know, I didn't have the, the courage to do that, <laughs> to turn down, and, you know, and, to look a gift horse in the mouth. But I, I also get the impression that session work is not what it used to be. For sure. I mean, you know, growing up in the late 80s at the heyday of the studio scene, you know, I looked, uh, you know, at that scene and thought oh yeah that's that's what i want to do there's all these guys that just stay in la and just do three huge studio sessions every day right you know and those days unfortunately are long gone there are very there used to be a lot of guys like i say that did not tour they were studio musicians they stayed in la i can't think of anybody that does that anymore i mean there maybe there are like half a dozen guys you know, I'm pretty sure there's both things in both that you love and maybe don't like. But do you have a preference? Is it the fact that you're on the road a lot? Does that mean that you thought, well, studio work is less interesting to me than seeing the world and traveling? No, not at all. I I love being in the studio. Um, the studio, you're. I find it to be a bit more creative. Because and you you get to work with all kinds of different people. You never often you never know what you're showing up to. You get called by a producer, and 
you don't often you don't know what you're going to be doing that day what kind of music it is and so you come in it's always really interesting and fresh and you have to it's really challenging in that you usually hear the song for the first time when you show up to the studio and you have to just figure out what you're going to play and so it can be really really creative that way um and it also sounds great in the studio you know everything sounds amazing um and so yeah there's a there's a lot of and like you say being home and i you know i have a wife and child at home so you know being away is is challenging um so yeah there's definitely a lot of things about the studio that are really compelling but um yeah i'm not going to turn down the who <laughs> I don't blame you. So, but before we get to the who, I think one of the breaks you had was also playing with Michelle Branch. Absolutely. And this was was she totally unknown when you started? Completely. There? Yeah. So I started with her just as her first record was coming out. Um, and was yeah. that like a producer, or did she hire you, or how did that? Um, actually, so let's see. I think. Uh, so the guy that had played keyboards with Rebecca, that first tour I did, so this is, goes back to the whole networking thing. Right. His name's Jim McGorman. Um, he had heard, he got called to audition for Michelle and he sort of thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we got some of our buddies that were all good friends together and kind of sort of put together our own little band and audition like, hey, why don't you hire us as a package? Because um, we all get along great and it'd be fun to be on the road together. So he called me up and was like, hey, you know, you want to uh, audition for her? And I was like, who? What? I guess so. Um, and, and, so and what are you doing at this point when you get this like random studio work? And I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think I was doing some studio work and... I think there were a couple people I was playing live with. I God, I can't remember, but not a whole lot. <laughs> I didn't. Um, I wasn't leaving a lot to do her tour, but um, so yeah, I went and auditioned. We auditioned together as a group. Um, Jim and a drummer friend of ours, Dave Allen, and myself, um, and they ended up liking us and hired us. Um, for that tour. And the great thing about that was that, yeah, at the time she was totally unknown and then her singles took off and, um, she became a pretty well-known artist at the time. And so having that kind of calling card of like, Oh yeah, I've toured with a sort of artist that had hits, mm -hmm. you know, definitely I was able to sort of ride that, uh, on her coattails, I guess, in a way. And does that automatically generate more phone calls? Well, I don't know that it generates more phone calls, but when you do get a phone call or you, you know, you call somebody, if you get offered a recommended for a tour, generally people are like, Oh, who is he played with? And if you say, Oh, so-and-so that you've never heard of, right. that's not very helpful. But if you're like, Oh, I toured for a year with Michelle Branch who has a top 10 hit or whatever. And they're like, Oh yeah, I've heard of her. Great. Because the understanding is if you've played with people of a certain stature, then you got to be pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Is that, does that, I mean, that, that makes total sense. Is it very apparent? Like, yeah, I think it's pretty true. Yeah. Because there are so many great musicians and 
you know, if you're not cutting the mustard, you'll <laughs> they'll find somebody else that can. But that, that's also a subjective thing. I mean, I, I know that you can go into the studio and the producer doesn't like the bass player, so he says, I'm sorry. Would, it's just, has that ever happened to you? Um, probably. I can't think of a situation, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. yeah I probably, I probably blocked, <laughs> blocked those out, but I'm sure there are plenty of them. <laughs> okay, when you, were, when you first started in L.A. and you were just working with everybody and trying to just establish a name and take any gigs for whatever, did you ever question what you're doing? Did you ever think, why am I, did I make the right decision? Was, was dad right? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm pre- I'm a pretty optimistic, positive person generally. I, I think I always thought I could make it work somehow, one way or another. I mean, I feel like I always felt like I was striving for this upper rung of the ladder, but I knew that there were rungs that if I fell down a couple rungs, I could grab on to one of those lower rungs and still, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. at that time I could... You know, I could go out and play jazz gigs in restaurants and make a little money here and there, or play in a, a cover band or playing wedding. You know, there was there was all kinds of different. I felt like musical work, kind of kinds of jobs I could do musically, whether they were what I wanted to do or not, I could still make a living. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Did you? Was there a point where you reached the point where you thought, "Wow, not that I've made it, because it's a work in progress," but you. You've made it to a certain level that this is what I wanted to be when I was that 13-year-old kid watching Letterman's band. Yeah, I think when I got the Sheryl Crow gig, that sort of felt like a pretty major step up and a kind of satisfying, like, wow, this is mm-hmm. this is pretty big time. Like, I think that gig... Not only was it career-wise, you know, she's a very well-known artist, but also she's such a great musician, and her band is so good. And she also plays the bass, too, She does, and she's a good bass player. Yeah, so that felt just pretty musically satisfying and fulfilling. Like, oh, wow, this, you know, this is a pretty major gig, musically and career-wise. So, yeah, that felt like a major stepping stone for sure and then and talking about the the different levels when you join a band like that do you automatically think wow they're just at a different level is it easy to get to that level for you like to just say okay i need to step it up or this is the level of band that i'm playing with now therefore this is the way i need to approach music i definitely feel like there there's an aspect of it that i felt like i needed to definitely be on my toes and like definitely rise to the occasion for sure. Yeah, I felt like a, a little bit of pressure, like, oh yeah, this is this is high level. I need to definitely yeah, be be uh on my toes, like I say. <laughs> and then I don't know what came next, but you also played with Shakira and with Roger Daltrey. Yeah, so Shakira was first and then Cheryl Crow and then Roger Daltrey, yeah. And funny enough, I I remember saying to my wife, you know, so when the Cheryl Crow tour kind of came to an end, she was going to take some time off and whatnot. And I remember saying, like, 
where do I go from here? Like, I mean, Cheryl just felt like such a mm-hmm. huge artist and like sort of the cream of the crop. Like what, what other gigs of this level are there that need a bass player? Like what, you know, I guess I'm pretty much going to have to take a step down from here, you know? <laughs> Cause you wonder about that. Sure. When you, I, and you're obviously touring at a different level. Yeah. Staying in better places and sure. transportation's better and everything's yeah. venues are better, whatever. And I, I, yeah, I'm sure that once you live that, it's, do I want to go back in a van and, you know. Absolutely. Well, you you know, the the common thing, is, it really is true. You're sort of like, am I ever going to work again? You know, is part of what comes to mind at times. <laughs> you know, you're like, wow, what now? Like, you But know? is it always at the, like, do you not get any advance notice that this tour is going to end in June and at that point you need to look for something else or? Um... With Cheryl, we didn't really get a huge notice. I think it was a few weeks. Like, you know, I think while we were on a certain run of a few weeks, it was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be the last the last thing. And then are you thinking, like, you don't know if you're going to go in the studio for the next project or go on the tour, the next tour after the next album, whatever. You, like, none of that is right. known to you. Correct. Okay. Yeah. But is it automatic that you say okay so i'm gonna go look for another gig and it depends on the situation but with the cheryl crow thing she she definitely uh expressed to us that she kind of wanted to just do something totally different which she did she ended up doing the, uh like a r&b rec- like an atlantic soul record right, right. she kind of i think she had been doing sort of her cheryl crow thing for so long she sort of and she's so talented like she can do anything I think she sort of felt like, oh, let me try something mm-hmm. totally different. So she kind of gave us the impression, like, okay, this is this is it. I'm I'm moving on and doing something different. So having worked with these people who are at the highest level, what have you learned? What, what do you think that they have that other musicians don't have? Or what is it? That, is there like a common thing that they have? Wow, man, that's a really good question that I don't know if I know the answer to. Um, what do they all have? I mean, they, I think one thing that they all have, they, all the really great artists that I've worked with all seem really bright, like just really smart, sharp people, Mm -hmm. you know, just high functioning. Right. And I don't, none of the people, none of the big artists that I've worked with, none of them seem like this is a fluke or an accident. They just seem like they have the talent, the skills that that's why they're where they are. It, they didn't fall into it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because it's not easy. And maybe somebody that's right has a fluke and has a hit. But maybe. to sustain that. I, well, that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I haven't seen any flukes or overnight <laughs> successes or any of that. Everybody that I've seen, they're where they are for a reason. Yeah. So you joined Roger's band, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Very cool. <laughs> um, were you a Who fan before? I was, but not until much later. I probably got into the Who probably not till I was almost 30. Wow. Um, yeah. I... I, yeah, I didn't really get into them till later, which is funny, right? I definitely <laughs> didn't grow up listening to The Who. 
Um, but yeah, I came to appreciate them much later. So what's the difference between playing in Roger's band as a bass player, playing, I presume, a lot of Who songs, right? and then playing with the Who, and Pete Townsend shows up? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty different. I mean, both Pete Townsend showing up and Zach Starkey. Um, one of the main differences is that with Roger, for whatever reason, we tended to kind of play pretty similar to what was on the, the parts that are on the record, right. or at least the arrangements that are on the record. And what I've sort of come to realize is those parts that are on the record are kind of just whatever they happen to do that day, you know? <laughs> and they've become sort of ingrained into our world as like, this is the way that song goes. But yeah. that's just kind of like what they did that day. And like Pete almost in a way plays like a jazz musician. Like he plays things different every night. It's a, he's a moving target. Um, and same with Zach. And it's, it's totally a conversation. It's an interaction and you never know what's going to happen. Um, whereas with Rogers band, it was a little more solidified. Like this, you know, this is how the song goes and this is the way we play it with the who it's just like, yeah, it's really exciting. And I can really, imagine. Yeah, really fun. Yeah, and that's why you had mentioned you came to the show last night and you mentioned that I was sort of like glued <laughs> to the left side of the stage. Like I'm not facing the audience. I'm actually, most of the time I'm turned, I've got like kind of one eye on Zach and one eye on Pete and I'm just like watching them like hawks just because you never know what's going to happen. Um, in addition to like an 80-piece orchestra. So tell me about that. Do, the, the show is... Uh, the first part of it with with the orchestra and the last part of it with the orchestra and then there's a middle part where the band plays on. How different is the approach when you play with the orchestra? Well, so, of course, the orchestra has a sheet of music mm -hmm. in front of them that they have to follow and they've got this section of 16 bars and so we have to sort of rein it in a little bit to an extent. We can't, you know, when we're playing without the orchestra, there are many parts where, you know, Roger just comes in with the verse whenever he does. And we sort of vamp until he comes in. And there's a lot of stuff is kind of open and, and, uh, left to chance, but definitely with the orchestra, we have to be aware of, you know, this section is 16 bars. And if we do it longer, the orchestra is going to be <laughs> looking around like what's happening. Cause they don't tend to improvise. No, <laughs> But, you know, there are times when we go off the map a little bit, but fortunately we have a, a great conductor that sort of, you know, lets them know where we are and then gets them back on the, on so the path. So my understanding is few people, few people from the orchestra tour with the band. Two of them, the cello player and the violinist, right. yes. Um, who are amazing. Yes. And the rest of the band are basically rehearsing the day of the show and they learn the material that day and... They the rest of the orchestra, in. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a different orchestra in every city. And I, my understanding is they get the music a little bit ahead of time, and they also send a recording of us live. But I don't know how much they run through it. I mean, you know, these guys are like, and girls, are the cream of the crop classical musicians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can just sight read, and, you know, you just put music in front of them. They're like, no problem. <laughs> Here we go. I mean, that you know. Yeah. So when they do the rehearsal, you're not involved in that at all. Correct. Yeah, they come in at like noon on the day of the show, and they run through 
most of it. I think the conductor is aware of which sections are tricky. And I think he knows, like, let's run this part and this part. The rest of this song is super easy, so we won't go through that. And so, yeah, they, they rehearse everything without us ahead of time. And then we come in for sound check and we run through like two or three songs with them. And that's it. And then they just wing it. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Do you have a favorite song to play? Because, I mean, you know, a part of it is also you're following the footsteps of two great bass players, at least. Yes. <laughs> and, and the fact that I presume there's certain things that you need to do that John Entwistle played. Yeah. Um, but I presume that you kind of make some things your own as well. Absolutely. Is that a difficult thing to determine what parts are? Mm, not really. I I feel like I'm I'm pretty aware of what parts sort of are signature parts that sort of need to be there. It just comes naturally to me, I think, to figure out which parts to stick to what he did and which parts to embellish and do my own thing. It uh, I I don't overthink it too much. I just it just kind of comes naturally. Um but playing some of Antwistle's parts or playing any of Entwistle's parts, he was such a unique bass player and such a high-level bass player. His t- his technical ability was just mind-boggling. And it's funny. I actually have been become aware lately. We've been playing a couple new songs mm-hmm. from their new record, which obviously, unfortunately, John Entwistle did not play on. Right. Um, uh, Pino Palladino, who was the bass player that played with The Who before me, um, also he, not a bad bass player yeah he's okay um, he played on the record and god I find it, it's it's amazing to me I've been noticing like oh it's so easy to play like a normal bass player apart from a normal human bass player as opposed to trying to do this Johnny Entwistle stuff um, yeah it's it's a real challenge playing, playing Entwistle stuff but it's just brilliant he was just incredible and I'm such a fan and and really am amazed by his his bass parts so in my opinion and just to me they're the greatest live band you're the greatest live band (laughs) and every time i see the who and i have seen them since 75 a number of times wow i'm just blown away and as i told you this is one of my favorite bands from right from when i first got into music awesome um I was there at the 82 or 83 final tour. <laughs> right, right, the farewell kind of, tour. Yeah, the farewell tour. 30 years ago. But, you know, seeing them a few years ago doing the Quadrophenia tour was just like mind-boggling. I just thought that was the ultimate who, and seeing last night was amazing. Is there is there a favorite song that, that they played that when you look forward to every night that you get to play? Um. Oh, man, there are so many. It's like trying to choose a child. <laughs> Um, funny enough, I mean, obviously people ask me this all the time. Um, but one of the things I really enjoy, so, uh, they've been doing, uh, won't get fooled again, Mm -hmm. just the two of them. And I really like just sitting back at the back (laughs) of the stage and being a fan and just watching Pete and Roger do their thing. Um, you know, and it's funny that. That's one of one of my favorite moments is when I'm not actually playing and I get to just watch them as a fan. It's a neat moment 
Um, but it's kind of curious. Like, I just wondered how many people would be disappointed because it's such an iconic song. And it used to be often the, the showstopper, the, the ending of the right. show. Yeah. And now it's in the middle and it's acoustic and you don't have the drum thing and you don't have the lace, laces or whatever. Yeah. But I, I just wonder how many people might have been a little disappointed that it wasn't the full band. I, I wonder that too. I mean, I personally think it's it's amazing. I, I really think it's a cool way to hear the song in a totally... I mean, because if you want to hear the full version, you can listen to the that's record, true, I that's guess. True. <laughs> and I think this is a... I think that's one of the cool things about seeing a real band as opposed to... No offense to some of the pop acts and hip hop acts that it just sounds like the record right. when you go see them live. It's like, well, that kind of what's the point of that? And so this, I feel like it's something different and something interesting in a way to sort of appreciate the song in a different way and really appreciate Roger and Pete and really see what they do and their interaction together. And Yeah. True. If I was a bass player, I think playing Real Me would be like the treat of the night. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Real Me. Yeah. That's, that's such an amazing, I mean, yeah, it's just like a bass tour de force. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I love playing 515. I love playing Punk and the Godfather. I love playing The Seeker. Mm-hmm. Um, what a great song that you is. You know, um, I love playing Substitute. I mean, there's so many great, you know, <laughs> like, how do you choose, right? It's like... Uh, so when you join a band like this and the tour happens, I presume somebody like Pete would say, this is a song list, that's it. How much you You would hope, but it's not true. Oh. Nobody says anything. I get a plane <laughs> ticket from the tour manager and yeah, there's not it's funny, there is so little communication. Like when so I you first, just have to know all the songs. Yeah, so when I first got the call to play with them, I actually I fortunately, funny enough, found a website that uh, categorize it people put the set list from tours into yeah. this website and it you can look at the songs uh, categorized by how often they're played live so I went <laughs> on that site and put the who in and I could see which songs they played and I learned them in order of how much they played them <laughs> so they don't even tell you which no. song wow and there have been times I mean fortunately this tour the set list is pretty set. But in the past, when we're without an orchestra, we would get the set list like 10 minutes before we got on stage. And there were times when I'd look at the set list and go, oh, we're playing that? We haven't played that in like a month and a half. I, uh, how's that? What key is that in? How's that? <laughs> like, I mean, I can remember times where we hadn't played Real Me in a long time. And I remember like some show at some point, like 10 minutes before we went on, I was like, oh, Real Me's on? Oh. <sighs> like <laughs> that's, that's a lot to remember. I haven't played that in a month, you know. But you, you know, you remember it. But wow. Yeah. So he said last night that there's no rehearsals. <laughs> Is that correct? Like before his tour, you don't rehearse for the most part. So for this tour, we hadn't played. Barring Wembley, we hadn't played in about two months, and we had one rehearsal the night before. And when we got on stage, Pete kind of was like, "Why are we here?" And somebody said, oh, well, we should run through such and such. He's like, why? <laughs> and then, well, maybe we could run through. Nah, I don't want to run through that. And then we ran through a couple of songs, and that was it. 
Wow. He Pete does not like to rehearse. He's like, I know the song. I know how it goes. <laughs> so I presume there was a there's a um, what would be called not a training period, but a rehearsal period where you join the band, probably for a leg of the tour, and then at one point you you you're told whether you're joining the next leg leg or whatever. Yeah. So when I initially joined the well, got called to do the Who, the deal was we had about, I think it was like a two-week tour of the UK. It was about six shows, I think. And um, I had been playing with Roger for a long time, but uh, Pete wasn't familiar with my playing. So his idea was, hey, let's have you do these few shows, see how it goes. And then if it goes well, we'll go from there. And then, of course... <laughs> You know, about five shows in, there was another, there was like a South American tour for coming up in a few weeks. And the crew was asking me like, hey, so which gear should we ship to South America and this and that? And I'm like, um, nobody's told me yet if I have the gig or not. So I actually had to like, you know, go to the management and be like, so what's you, the word? Am I in? <laughs> and are you thinking, do you, do you have any idea if you're in or not? I had an idea. Pete seemed to be enjoying what I was doing. And uh, when he was introducing me on stage, he was making a few nice comments and complimenting me and stuff. So I sort of had a feeling like, I mean, Pete doesn't mince words. If I wasn't working out, he He would would let me know, probably on stage in front of the audience. (laughs) Um, So I had a pretty good feeling that it was that it was working out. Was the first gig at the Royal Albert Hall? (laughs) Filmed for a DVD. (laughs) Yep. That was my first gig. And, and was there rehearsals before that? We did rehearse for that. I think we maybe had five rehearsals that were each about three hours. So. And what's a, what does a Who rehearsal look like? They just go through a bunch of songs. Usually uh, we show up and sit around and chat and have some tea. And Roger and Pete will roll in a couple hours late and have some tea and chat some more. And then we'll eventually get on on stage and put our instruments on and say, well, should we run through this? Nah. What about this? Nah, I don't want to. Maybe we should run through it. Okay, and then we'll run through a song. Yeah, it's pretty... <laughs> I mean, there are things... And, I mean, a few points during rehearsal, you know, Pete would... Since I was the new guy, Pete would say, hey, John, is there anything that you feel like you need to run through? So he was, he was conscious of that. Um, but, of course, it's hard to be like, Okay, everybody, let's all run through this for me. You know, like that's a hard thing to say. I mean, there were a couple of songs I said, yeah, I'd like to at least play this once before we film a DVD. Two to three years now since you've been in the band. Yes, three years, yeah. Does it feel like home? Does it feel like. It does. Yeah, I feel pretty pretty comfortable now. I don't totally feel like the new guy. (laughs) What's the best, what's the greatest thing you've learned from this experience? Um, wow, man. Part of, I think one of the things that I've been sort of working on lately and that I've been learning is, is it's so intense sometimes being on stage with them and just learning to still be relaxed in my body and not tense up. You can, it can get so intense at times that you sort of start kind of, I don't know, I start digging in too hard and playing too hard on my bait, you know, like, like plucking too hard and playing too loud and, and get tension in my jaw and just sort of like, 
I get so intense, you know, and to try and still be intense, but still be relaxed at the same time and almost be Zen about it, you know, still be really focused and intense, but not like, I don't know, clenching all your muscles in your whole body or something. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I've sort of learned and been working on. Well, that's interesting. That's almost like the other thing about playing too fast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy getting, in, you know, playing Who songs in front of 60,000 people. I mean, it's it's intense. And, you know, you can like, I don't know, get just kind of, it's hard to be still relaxed and, and kind of not not get overexcited. So on your off time, when they're not touring for a couple months or whatever, are you always looking for other things to do or are you, are you not anymore because of the fact that you're just getting ready for the next leg of the tour? Um, I'm looking for certain things to do. Um, I definitely uh, am open to doing studio work. I really enjoy working in the studio while I'm, while I'm home. Um, but I'm not looking for other touring things. I get asked a fair bit to do like little singer songwriter live shows in LA and I I tend to shy away from those. Part of it is I I I put too much effort into like you know if there's a some singer that's doing one show at a cafe in LA and they want me to do it. I I put the same amount of work into that that I put in, in preparing for like a who show. I can't just sort of like Oh, just kind of throw it off like, oh, I'll just go do that show. I put, you know, I put all this effort into it. And I've found lately I kind of have to just say no because otherwise I'll spend, you know, 20 hours of my home time trying to prepare for one gig at a cafe with 30 people at it. <laughs> but, but I would presume that the reason why you are where you are today is because of that kind of attitude. And Indeed. I would say so, yeah. So I'm a preparer. <laughs> Um, you might have just answered the question, but what do you think it is about you that has taken you from that little kid in Alaska dreaming to be a hired musician to the bassist of the greatest band? <laughs> That's who. Um, I think, like we said, I, I'm always prepared. I put in the work ahead of time. Um, I make sure I, I know all the material I've got everything lined up I yeah prepared and then I think additionally I'm just kind of a an easygoing easy to be around guy I mean especially with the touring thing like if you're hard to get along with that word gets around fast and you won't get hired for tours because you know you're out in close quarters for a long periods of time you know mm -hmm. on these tours you have to be easy to get along with otherwise there are too many amazing musicians you know standing behind you that are ready to take your place <laughs> my final question and thank you so much for doing this it's such a thrill for me to sit my, down and talk to you about my this. pleasure you're welcome um do you have goals at this point musical goals um it's hard it's hard at this point like how do you set a goal above playing with the who like <laughs> yeah. I, you know i mean my goal mainly is to just be able to keep working as a musician and just sort of stay where I'm at, you know? Um, I think one goal would be to try and do more studio work and play on some bigger records, I think, um, and, you know, work more with 
bigger artist in the studio would be a goal. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real honor meeting you. And, and watching you play last night, once again, with my favorite band, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was neat. And I was looking so forward to meeting you. And right I on. really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with me. My pleasure. Thank you.